0: Welcome to First Up. It is Ratu, Tuesday the 5th of July. Cornethan Nathan Coming up, the hits keep coming for Boris Johnson. We will cross to London for this week's episode. Uh, As winter bugs take hold, we're going to speak to a school hiring relievers to relieve the relievers. We'll also ask Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis what her leader has learned from his policy-pinching trip around the world. And the real invasion of the body snatchers. It's the fungus taking control of insects' bodies and blasting their heads off. It mummifies the caterpillar
1: and then produces out of its head this stick-like structure which goes above the ground. At the top of that structure, you'll see all of the tiny fruit bodies of the fungus and the spores are produced from that.
0: And it's happening as we speak. Welcome to First Up, we're going to begin First Up in the UK today where I understand the nation is um, shocked and um, shocked to its very core because Nick Kyrgios has worn red shoes in a game of tennis, uh, we'll um, we'll get into that soon but Prime Minister Boris Johnson is still in charge even it's always a bumpy road with him and he's bumbling on down it. Uh, joining me now from London is our correspondent Hope Bolger, morena Hope, how are you? Hi, good. Thank you, Nathan. How are you? I'm good. Um, It's another week, another crisis for Boris Johnson. What is it with him this time?
2: Yes, um, it's a return to the UK for the Prime Minister after various international summits, and it seems straight back into new controversy. This time, it's over whether he knew about allegations of inappropriate behaviour by Chris Pincher before he hired him to be the Deputy Chief Whip in February. And today, Number 10 has come out and said that Mr Johnson was aware of, it says, reports and speculation, but they didn't block him from the job. Um, because the allegations were unsubstantiated. Now, for background, if you haven't heard about this, last week reports came to light that Mr. Pincher, who is the Conservative MP for Tamworth, um, as well as being the Deputy Chief Whip, groped two men. Since then, he's faced a number of historical claims, which he also denies. Um, these claims came to light, and Mr. Pincher resigned as Deputy Chief Whip. He apologised, saying he drank far too much. Um, and on Friday, he was suspended as Conservative MP he currently sits in Parliament as an independent. As I said, you know, Prime Minister aware of some kind of unsubstantiated rumours around this.
0: Gone with the drunk far too much one. OK, um, but also I see hits keep coming for Boris. Uh, his his then-girlfriend, now-wife, they've both been accused of being caught, uh, well, not quite, I don't know if it's in an act or a what. There's the, the denial. Tell us about it. What 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 is this one, Hope?
2: Yes. So um, this refers to allegations that in 2018, while Boris Johnson was foreign secretary, he and Carrie were caught in a, um, a compromising situation by a Conservative MP. Um, but today, a senior number 10 source has told the, con- and the Independent newspaper that these reports are sordid and untrue. The source said that the MP who raised concerns with colleagues after walking in on the couple um, is, quote, adamant that nothing remotely physical was going on. Number 10 are definitely trying to just move on from this story, brush under the carpet, saying that. They are mad old questions about a non-event many years ago before Boris got to
0: Downing Street. Okie dokie. Uh, if we have a look across the House in the British Parliament, I see the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, look, he's not saying that we wouldn't have done Brexit, right? But he says his party wouldn't have made such a mess of it. Is that correct?
2: Uh, yes, that's it. I mean, there's, there's kind of two elements to what he's saying. He's saying that he he's not wanting to backtrack. He, this isn't a conversation about rejoining the EU. But if Labour was in charge, they'd definitely handle things differently. So later on, he's going to spell out how his party would make Brexit work, as he says. Um, He's going to recommit to keeping the UK out of the EU single market, customs union, and free movement rules. Um, Speaking to press earlier, he says he wants to go forwards, not backwards. Um, But he is critical, um, as I've said, of the Conservative government's track record on this, saying its Brexit deal is holding us back. Um, Now, it's interesting because when um, Sir Keir was shadow Brexit secretary. He said the party should advocate staying in the EU if there was ever a second referendum but now as leader he's you know he stayed pretty quiet on this subject up until this point. Pretty much avoided talking about Brexit. So this speech kind of marks his attempt to say no we have done Brexit, this has happened but this is what we want to do to in his words do it better and it marks an attempt to regain control over an issue that's been dividing line between Labour's MPs, members and some of its voters as well.
0: Hey, finally this week, Hope, um, there's been arrests across the UK for driving too slow. Is is what? Is this slow vehicles or is it more of these protests?
2: Um, yes, yeah, so it's more than a dozen protesters that have been arrested for driving too slowly during demonstrations on motorways today. Um, they've been organised under this social media banner, fuel price stand against tax, and they've driven in a series of convoys at 30 miles an hour, which is just under 49 kilometres per hour, um, and in an attempt to cause gridlock on major roads and motorways across England, Scotland, and in Wales as well. Now, um, fuel prices have been at record highs in recent weeks, which is largely largely being put down to rising wholesale prices and the war in Ukraine. So thousands of vehicles have come out in support. They've been seen nose to nose crawling across some of the major roads here. And, you know, while some motorists have been angry, others have actually joined this convoy and joined the support. Um, Police forces are not too happy about this, and they've arrested people. as I said for driving too slowly and they've asked motorists to drive at a safe speed for the road conditions. Um, The government says it's looking carefully and um, carefully considering other options um, including a more
0: um, substantial fuel duty cut to help to support drivers. Wonderful. Hope, thank you so much for your time out of the UK. That is Hope Bolger. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radare. Maybe you can download any time or perhaps you are listening right now which is weird, it'll be in the future, uh, to the the podcast which we have every day. Um so if you do, yeah, you want to share it with mates, go no, no, no have a listen. They've got they got a podcast for it. It's called First Up. You can um tw- you can message us anytime with feedback two one oh one or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. Uh, you might have seen this news. A twenty-two-year-old Danish man suspected of the weekend shooting in a Copenhagen shopping mall has appeared in court. He's been charged with three counts of murder and four of attempted murder. Two teenagers and a Russian man were killed in the attack four others remain in a critical condition in hospital police say that the shooter had mental health issues and there was no indication of a terror motive the bbc's jessica parker has this report
3: panic and fear as gunshots ring out at a shopping mall in denmark's capital the rush to escape a deadly attack Two 17-year-olds and a 47-year-old Russian man who lives in Denmark were killed. Four others left in a serious condition.
0: I've spoken to my daughters. They were in a restaurant where the perpetrator was firing the shots, but they managed to get out. So now they're hiding in an apartment. They just saw a guy coming up the escalator, starting to fire with an automatic gun. And so they, of course, just ran as quick as they could.
3: A short time later, the father and daughter reunited. This, a chilling image of the alleged gunman. A 22-year-old man, described as an ethnic Dane, was arrested minutes after the shooting. Police say he was known to mental health services.
4: There
5: is nothing in our investigation of the documents that we have been looking at or the items we've found or the witness statements we have that indicate it was an act of terror.
3: The Fields Mall is one of Denmark's biggest shopping centres, located on the outskirts of Copenhagen to the south. A music concert by Harry Styles at the nearby Royal Arena was cancelled. On social media, the British singer said... I'm devastated for the victims, their families and everyone hurting. I'm sorry we couldn't be together. Please look after each other. Denmark's Prime Minister, Mette Frederiksen, said the country had suffered a cruel attack, one that's left its
0: capital city reeling. That was Jessica Parker there in Copenhagen. It is 5.13 uh, here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Garere. Well, Tokyo Metropolitan Police in Japan have just arrested a 68-year-old man who'd put his brother's skull out with the recycling. Uh, We might get to that perhaps soon. But in my catch-up with Chris Gilbert this week, we start with news about a pamphlet with archaic views on the rainbow community that's being distributed in the lead-up to the Japanese elections.
6: The LDP is... The, uh, the governing party of Japan. And the pamphlet, you know, I call it a pamphlet in the notes. It's actually 90 pages long. And huh. this story is one of these little spotlights that shows behind the scenes in Japan here and just how behind it is on these issues. With Japan's upper house election just five days away, this 90-page, quote, pamphlet that was distributed amongst LDP lawmakers it says that LGBT plus people suffer from quote an acquired sexualological disorder. Oh my God, I feel horrible even saying it. Mm. And they say it's just as addictive as gambling. Now, this is not the party saying it. This is the pamphlet that was distributed at the party meeting saying that. Supposedly, this uh, was distributed on uh, J- June thirteenth at a hotel conference in Tokyo. And the source of this. Uh, material, apparently, is, you guessed it, a religious group, the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership. This group is made up of thousands of representatives of Shinto shrines all across the country, Shinto, Shinto shrines, of course, being adorable little places just like my neighbor Totoro where you go and you clap your hands and you bow and it's lots of trees around it's all very lovely and harmless yeah. this group however not so lovely and harmless um they endorse political candidates who uh, oppose married couples choosing their own last names of course they want the man to you know keep their name for the both of them they uh, uh endorse candidates who promote a return to the executive rule of the emperor they endorse candidates who oppose already dated gender equality measures introduced in 1999, 23 years ago. And now we now know, they generally oppose anyone not heterosexual. Mm. Of the 465 Diet members, that's the Japanese parliament, of 465 members, 262, that's 56%, are part of the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership. Former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe used to be a secretary general. And this pamphlet not only says that homosexuality is an acquired addiction, but it says that it's one that be, can, can be kicked with willpower.
0: Oh, willpower. Okay.
6: Uh, sorry, I had to take a deep breath after that <laughs> one. So I just, it just The blood started boiling a little bit. If you look at the group's website, though, you'll find a lot of good pamphlets about spiritual nobility. Uh, You know, like living a good life, but uh, very light on the website about delegitimizing, disenfranchising and almost persecuting an entire part of society. (laughs) However, even though this election is just days away, this sadly will not be kind of like the 2005 National Party exclusive brethren moment, if you all remember that one. Um, It's a horrible stereotype about Japan, but it's also quite true that it is still extremely patriarchal. Heteronormative society with uh, very dated views on not just this issue but mental health, gender roles, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What is interesting, however, that while this is happening, is that major corporations who operate here in the country are still training their employees, like like as the year 2022, on uh, using you know non-aggressive communication, creating safe working environments, accepting diversity, avoiding microaggressions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Capitalism is progressing social values faster than the government. There are huge efforts here being made outside parliament to uh, promote the rights and visibility of the communities like this. But the context is that. You know, with the people here in power, they're being elected every year by a very old population, a very large old population, who, to be perfectly honest, is shrinking. So it'll be interesting to see how fast Japanese politics and society progresses in the next 20 years. But for now, unfortunately, things like this uh, flyer are still being made, and it's hardly going to rock the election boat.
0: Okay, so um, tell me about the election, because I see there's some close battles there.
6: There are some close battles in the election. Um, uh, Sahih Shimbun shows, uh, this, the, one of the uh, newspapers here, shows that uh, 30% of the population are still undecided and it's a proportional representation election. So, you know, if 30% of the country wakes up one morning and says, hey, you know what, I wanna vote for the other guy for the first time in 50 years, that could sway things. Hmm. But uh, there are 125 upper house seats being uh, available uh, during the polar- polarity of parties. Only 55 are needed for an outright win or win by coalition, 63 for a majority. Uh, the ruling LDP and in coalition looks far out you know, in the lead along with their um, right-wing coalition partners. But the main constituencies of, uh, in uh, Fukui, Miyazaki and Fukushima prefectures, uh, opposition parties' votes there are up. There are also close battles, uh, six Nick and Nick, in 13 areas across Tokyo and Saitama prefectures. And uh, the number of expected seats to be won by the LDP has decreased from 56 to 53 so things are heating up here a little bit again like just putting on my crystal ball gazing hat if such a thing existed <laughs> um looking at history <laughs> looking at history and um the fact that uh, the ldp hung on and, and the general assembly last year like they do every year in the middle of an incredibly unpopular olympics uh leadership changes and a pandemic um i can't really see this being a nail-biter but we'll see again in five days
0: it's the 5th of July. That's a happy birthday to Huey Lewis. But if you believe, no we can fall. Yes, the We Are the World singer was born Hugh Anthony Craig III on this day in 1950, and he turned 72 years old today. Well, for our local democracy reporting spot this morning, we are in beautiful Marlborough, where Maya Hart has been reporting on the upcoming local body elections.
7: Yeah, we've well, we managed to get a bit of a rundown. From, gosh, almost everyone except the mayor, um, who hasn't really given us an update since May, hmm. um, but one councillor is been down after 24 years. There's another three-term councillor and a couple two terms, I believe. So yeah, there may be a few a few shakeups looking at this year's election, which is interesting.
0: And is that why is that they've just had enough, or are they finding it combative, or what? Like what what were their reasons for just not running again? That you know.
7: I think a little bit of had enough. Councillor Jenny Andrew is the one actually after 24 years in local government, she kind of said, you know, she's loved every minute, but three waters, for example, and government reforms have been quite difficult. So she sort of said, well, I'm going to hang up my hat. But then I guess you get the other side of it where you get councillors that are like, well, I need to stick around or try to stick around, I guess, Hmm. um, because of these government reforms, because they need some consistency around the council table. So, yeah, it varies, I think.
0: So that's the people standing for this. What what are the issues that the people voting uh, most want their council to address in its next term?
7: It's a tough question. I (laughs) guess we're still trying to find, yeah, still trying to get a a grip on those issues. Um, Of course, all the government reforms have got people chatting. Uh, We know that. Climate change is always one that gets people, obviously. Um, We've got some big projects going on at the moment um, or coming up. The Picton Ferry Terminal, We've got combined college build with the Marlborough Girls College and Marlborough Boys College, which I think is the single biggest spend um, for the Ministry of Education
0: yeah.
7: on infrastructure. So, yeah, there's a lot, obviously, going along that, um, yeah, they need to be, obviously, have a handle on.
0: So, uh, who are the front runners for mayor at the moment?
7: Oh, we don't know yet. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, so the mayor is keeping pretty tight-lipped at the moment. Um, I tried chatting to him last week and didn't get a reply, and the last time I talked to him specifically about running again was in, I think, May, and he said he hadn't made a decision yet, um, and we're yet to get anyone else to confirm if they're running, so stay okay, tuned, we well, we'll find look, out.
0: I, I can do it, as long as I can work remote, I can do it. <laughs> Although it is very beautiful there, that's you know I'll, I'll be there every now and then. But if if you guys need someone, just give me a ring. You got my number. Hey, to uh, to some horror, sad news here. Look, after that horror crash near Picton a few weeks back, remember there were seven people that died in that? Concerns being raised about an, another stretch of road nearby. What's this?
7: Yeah, well, so State Highway One where it happened. Personally, obviously, very sad. Obviously, what comes out of that is everyone kind of starts talking about the speed or whether that's a factor or whether the road's up to scratch mm. um, but the regional transport committee actually met two days before the crash happened just by chance and one of the discussions they had then was speed um, on that particular road which was reviewed earlier this year um, and I kind of put the question to the committee chair councillor Francis Mar um, and I actually said are there any other stretches of road um, that are an issue and he said well South of Blenheim at Rivlands, they had three fatal crashes in the space of a fortnight yeah. uh, in 2020. So what he was kind of getting at is, you know, you can look at one stretch of road one day, but then the next day there's a crash somewhere else. So it's really hard to, to kind of pinpoint where the issues are and where it needs to be looked at further. <laughs>
8: sands through the hourglass
0: so are the days of our lives this is the day of our life we call the 5th of July here in New Zealand it's a happy birthday to the man that his teammates called Shaker John Wright of course former New Zealand opening cricket batsman and coach cool called shakes because apparently that's how he used to pack his bag they said he'd put all the stuff in the gear bag and then it wouldn't fit, and he'd just shake it was and forwards so there you go also happy birthday to eddie falco there's one for the sopranos fans who is 59 and are fans of the wu-tang clan uh, it's that guy that raps about karate, uh, RZA, is 52 today. Well, many people have said, "Oh yeah, what was the best thing before that?" Well, I'll tell you what. On this day in 1928, the Chillicothe Baking Company of Chillicothe, Missouri, produced what they called the greatest step in baking industry since bread was wrapped—sliced bread. So that's what you know people go, like, oh, what was the thing before before sliced bread? It was wrapped bread, there you go. It was called Clean Made Sliced Bread and uh, it went gangbusters for them and they became very rich. On this day in 1946, the bikini was introduced at the Paris Fashion Show. It was a French designer, uh, Louis Rayard, hopefully I said his name right, he tried to get models to wear it and they were like um, no. So he had to hire a 19 year old nude dancer to model it. He called it the bikini because he knew that France was having a nuclear test two days later and he thought it would be explosive. So that's why he called it that. It was not what was worn over there. On this day in 1954 the BBC broadcast its first television news bulletin I imagine the opening line were fears for looming crisis or something like that. That's what we do. On this day in 1975 at the Nedworth Festival in England, Pink Floyd debuted Wish You Were Here. It had pyrotechnics, also an exploding plane, uh, which flew onto the stage. The farming world, the agriculture world, went wow in 1996. On this day as Dolly, a female sheep from Finn, uh, was a Finn Dorset sheep, was born near Edinburgh, becoming the first successfully cloned mammal. And on this day in 1989, the first episode of a show called The Sign. Seinfeld Chronicles aired on NBC. It's a bit of a flop, shortened it to Seinfeld, and it went quite well after that. And that is this day, the 5th of July.
7: The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the
1: birds and bees. I want
0: money. And joining us from the business team is Nicholas Poynton. Kia ora, sir. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Tell me about what's what's the, the debt? Debt, consumers falling behind in debt? Is this like, oh, yeah, 20 months interest fee and then yeah, just not paying
4: well, it? I think we're starting to see some first real signs of hardship flowing through in some of the economic indicators we keep an eye on. This is. Mainly this is debt around personal lending and buy-now-pay-later schemes. And But mm. remember, buy-now-pay-later schemes aren't treated like other forms of credit. It's a bit of a unicorn. The the government routinely says it's keeping an eye on it, but uh, no, it's not treated like other forms of credit. But look, that's a separate story in itself. Sticking mm. with this, latest data out from the credit reporting firm Centrix shows that the number of people who are in arrears or in default is up 11.7% on last year uh interestingly though this hasn't necessarily flown through to car loans and home lending consumers do tend to prioritize their debts when they um what they pay first it will be those main big items things like your mortgage and your car and it's the things like personal lending buy now pay later schemes which you'll Perhaps more willing or prepared to fall behind on, but the concern for Centrix, when we spoke to them was that there 's nothing to suggest that we won 't see an uptick in arrears in the auto market in in people 's mortgages because interest rates still still are still expected to go up, and people were dealing with a number of challenges, especially with things like high inflation at the moment so mm. look, this really is some cause for concern it 's going to be interesting. To keep an eye on, especially with regard to the Reserve Bank's interest rate cycle, as I talk about it. You know, when will this begin to flat off? When will that pressure start to come off, families? So, um, yeah, real concern, one to keep an eye on. And it sort of flows into our next story, which is the new vehicle market is starting to run out of gas. And that's because we were buying record amounts of new cars last year. yeah, And, well, uh, people's discretionary spending has completely fallen away. And that really is an indicative sign of consumer sentiment at the moment. And uh, just over 12,000 vehicles sold last month, down 20% on a year ago. Um, the, number, the, number, the top three cars in New Zealand, this is a bit of a change in what we've seen. The Mitsubishi Outlander, an SUV, followed by the Toyota Hilux and the Kia Sportage. Interestingly, the name that's not mentioned there is the Ford Ranger, Which New Zealand has had a love affair with for the past sort of three or four years. So, I think much of that has got to do with uh, the rebate scheme, Clean Card discount, those sorts of things. But look. Two bits of economic data there that maybe don't show that things are going as well as we'd like to see Every
0: them. now and then I'll pull into the car park and there'll be one of those giant cars and now I've hit the bit where I
4: pull up next to it and go,
0: How much do you cost to fill up? Oh, I know. <laughs> it's my that. first I'm thought. Like, Rich, I don't want to say
4: I don't want to say schmuck, but man, cool. it's a tough one. You yeah. know, you've got to if you're buying a Ute now, it's no longer a sort of a cosmetic thing. No, you no, know, no. You know, it's um, you better be doing newty things with it. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty punishing at the pump.
0: Yeah, I used to, I used to trick people into buying cars in a, a former a role in my life that, that I had there, and that's what I used to call it: trick adult people into buying cars. And um, yeah, we never mentioned the fuel economy on it. I was always like, look at that, look at the oh, front of it, look, look. at that. Rawr.
4: I've I like watching ads, Bluetooth. and like one of the things I've noticed is how often. Fuel consumption, as advertised, especially with all the EVs and things like yeah, that, it yeah, it really yeah. is a selling point. Especially when petrol's probably the highest it's been in years and years and years time. Completely. <laughs> hey, cheers. Thank you, Nicholas. You can hear more from uh, the business team on Morning Report
0: this morning at 10 to 7. If we go to the money markets, your New Zealand dollar is out there and it's battling hard for you. Uh, so far, it will buy you today. 62.14 US cents, 90.51 Australian cents, 59.59 Euro cents, 51.33 British pence, 4.161, 84.31 Japanese yen, 34.5 Russian rubles and... And $1.68 East Caribbean dollars. And if you go, well, where am I going to spend those? Well, if you go to Antigua, you might go to Dominica, or even um, St. Kitts and Nevis. You could, uh, getting over there to earn some T20 dollars. I don't know, but that's what you could be getting. Well, this is an interesting one. Just beneath the soil of New Zealand, a horror story is unfolding that would rival the most gruesome slash and gore picks. Spores that have burrowed into young cicadas during their long hibernation are beginning to take over control of their bodies. They're called cordyceps and they're all around us. Now, to find out more about this fascinating, deadly fungus, I spoke with Dr Peter Buchanan, who's a team leader at Landcare Research, and I asked about recent reports of lots of cicadas sprouting cordyceps in the Wellington region.
1: Yeah, well, this is a a fungus that is adapted to parasitizing uh, particular insects, in this case, um, mainly cicadas. And it, it infects the cicada when it's sitting in the soil, which it does for a number of years as a nymph. And um, unfortunately, the poor cicada gets invaded by this fungus, and uh, the fungus takes over the whole body of the cicada, and it dies, obviously. And then, of course, the fungus needs to reproduce. So out of the body of the cicada, normally around the sort of head region, I think, comes a, a series of reproductive structures which appear above the ground. And Mike Dickinson actually uh, described it quite nicely, as little, little tiny popcorn pieces of popcorn on stalks. Uh, and that's what it looks like—a whole cluster of little popcorn pieces uh, attached by stalks back to the, um, the the buried cicada
0: mm. nymph. So, so, when they obviously the cicadas are going into a soil, what where, where this already exists? And like, did can they not sense that there's something in there that that will eventually be dangerous?
1: no the basically, I think the fungus has adapted to produce masses of spores, and that 's what the, these sort of popcorn structures are they 're just masses, and masses of tiny, easily spread um fine powdery spores, those spores sort of get into the ground as well. And so when an unfortunate nymph um, happens to be close to or where one of these spores are nearby and they actually germinate and grow into the, the nymph, then no, the nymph can't sense that. Mm. Um, the spores are there distributed through the soil, which is the, the, how the fungus needs to get around and reproduce and, and uh, insect more nymphs. So it's not a danger to the nymph, mind you. This is a this is an evolutionary balanced system. So huh. a small percentage of nymphs succumb to this, but majority do not, and hence we have cicadas each year.
0: So so the fungus can it reproduce any other way or does it have to climb into a cicada?
1: It has to be has to access a cicada or another insect larva that it uh, is able to infect. But there are some that are specific to cicadas. So yes, it, it cannot reproduce in any other way.
0: Oh wow! So as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier on, there are lots of types of cordyceps. Do do they hmm. all do the same thing? They they get into a host and kill it to reproduce. Yeah, that's
1: basically the the way that they the life cycle works. They produce spores. The spores need to just by chance find or be close to some insect that is uh, that they're adapted to infect and if that happens then they can actually then grow within the the organism and eventually produce their fruit body.
0: So I I know there's people at home going as they listen to this if I breathe it in is that bad for me will one grow inside me? Uh, no, no, and and our, our
1: systems are well adapted to cope with spores. We're breathing spores in all the time of all sorts of different fungi, and we breathe in, breathe in pollen and fern spores and that sort of thing. And our bodies are fine in that regard, unless we have our immune system, which has been compromised. And then, yes, you don't want to breathe unnecessarily large volumes of spores, but typically we're well adapted to cope with the normal complement of spores that are in the air all the time.
0: Well, I mean, I guess... Yeah, I mean, if we look back into Maori history, uh, who had a use for 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 these um, fungus and and what they do? Mm. I guess it shows that it's not dangerous to to a human then.
1: Oh, certainly not. Collecting small quantities of these sort of things, um, no, there's there's no normally no danger at all. And and different ones of them produce spores in different ways. So the complement uh, from they're, they're fairly tiny structures anyway. So I mean you. You there are lots and lots of spores, but they're microscopic and you know, you're unlikely to get a, a big concentration from a cordyceps, for example, unless you were taking it in as something that you were putting very, very close to your face and intentionally breathing in the spores.
0: Well, I mean, as as I understand it, the, the, those early cordyceps were used by Māori to um for the colouring in, in, in your mucal on you know on 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 your face, tattoos, things like that. Mm,
1: that's correct. And that was a, a quite visually quite different looking cordyceps. Um, because it looks, the fruit body there, instead of a, it's little, little popcorn pieces on stalks, it's actually a long stalk that looks more like a, a twig or a yeah a short branch that, that projects out of the ground. And those ones are attached not to a cicada, but to the larva of, of a large hippialid moth. So these, these they're called vegetable caterpillars or afeto, and um, that that large caterpillar goes, is in the ground and it's killed by the fungus while it's in its burrow. And then the fungus actually needs to reproduce again, of course, and so it produces from the head of the caterpillar, and the head is always uppermost in this burrow. It's quite a quite a large caterpillar, and it mummifies the caterpillar and then produces out of its head this stick-like structure which goes above the ground, and then uh, if you look, Very closely at the top of that structure, you'll see all of the tiny fruit bodies of the fungus and the spores are produced from that.
0: So, Peter, is the evolutionary advantage here, I'm trying to figure why, you know, obviously the the advantage of evolution is you manage to reproduce and, and, you know, make make another generation. When Mm. when they're up around the head, is is, is there like a larger concentration of nutrients there or something?
1: Oh, I think in in the case of, say, the um, afeto, it's coming out through the head as as the shortest distance to the ground level. Okay. So the head of the caterpillar is always uppermost in the burrow, and so the, the fungus, as, as fungi are amazingly able to do, they sense gravity, and they need to go up above uh, to get above ground level so that the spores can be dispersed, hmm. and the shortest distance is from the head of the caterpillar.
0: So how many types of these parasitic fungus do, do we have in New Zealand?
1: Uh, I don't actually know the number, but um, yeah, several tens, uh, up to 100 I don't know. But there's been some extensive studies done by a uh, colleague, Nicholas Cummings. Uh, he did his PhD on these fungi, and other people like Travis Blair and others have, have really studied them intensively. We've got quite a collection of them too in the National Culture Collection, and we've also got lots of dried specimens in the National Fungal, Fungarium, which is the National Collection of Fungi. So they're not, they're not well known, and there's still more to be discovered, but there has been some, some fairly focused study done on them in New Zealand, and they are quite conspicuous in the forest at this time of year and uh, many other times of the year as well.
0: The professionals of RNZ of the morning report through... Joining us uh, this morning is crew captain uh, Susie Ferguson. Kia ora, Susie, how are you?
5: <laughs> Kia ora, Nathan,
0: I'm well, how are you? <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> just imagine you guys have shown up in your Peaky Blinders hats.
5: Well I'm wearing one as we speak, I oh, can't yeah. believe that you, 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 you don't know that. Oh that's sorry, it's the video
0: link, hang on wait, I'll just Oh, 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 oh there it is. Oh I can see it, it's great. <laughs> it's beautiful. Here we go. We've had um, uh, cicadas with exploding heads on the show this morning. What have What have you got happening on Morning Report today?
5: Oh, I don't think we can top that actually. Um so Cicadas with Exploding Heads, I'm gonna to have to go back and listen to that again. <laughs> um, we're going to be we're going to be talking about um I guess it's all climate change related. This marine heat wave that is killing thousands of farmed fish. Also, of course, looking over to Sydney and the extraordinary yeah. flooding there again you know it 's you know in the second time in as many months, and you know it's it 's not it wasn 't long before that time that we had more flooding in Sydney, but more than thirty thousand people have had to evacuate uh, because of this rising flood water, so a really serious situation that 's unfolding over in sydney uh, also we 're going to be talking about how humanity is uh, another step closer to returning to the moon. this is because of success that has been made with rocket labs plans we'll be hearing from peter beck on the program and if you've ever fancied yourself having a vampire kit and, then we'll uh, be talking about one of them as well That's just gone under the hammer in the uk
0: fantastic I, I want to know about this is it to become one or to hunt one or shall i wait oh to hunt one! Oh, to hunt one all right. mm. well, so if you mistakes. fancy one
5: of them, listen in uh, at all after six.
0: Will do. Thank you very much, uh, Susie Ferguson there, and of course, our morning report with you after six. Well, each week we get to talk to the deputy leaders of the two largest parties in the country. This morning it's the turn of Nationals Nicola Willis. I started by asking about her leader Christopher Luxon's trip to Singapore, Ireland and London, where he's hoping to get policy ideas that could be applied here in Aotearoa.
9: Well, he's been in Singapore so far, and he'll be in Ireland Uh, And then he'll be in London. And he is really excited because what he's been doing is he met with the Prime Minister in Singapore. He talked to them about their economy, what they've done to grow it, how they've delivered some big infrastructure projects. And I think that what he's taken is a bit of a picture perspective. What is possible? What have other countries have achieved? What from that could we take and apply in New Zealand. I know in Ireland he's going to have a focus on technology companies and what they need to succeed. Mm. Uh, And in London he'll also be taking a bit of a focus on education because they did a bit of a turnaround job with their schools and have really lifted literacy uh, and numeracy achievements. So are there lessons that New Zealand can learn there?
0: So with Singapore and the infrastructure, I'm, I'm just thinking, because they're so tiny, I mean, they'd fit their entire nation into Lake Topol. So when he's talking about infrastructure, what's the relatable infrastructure to us?
9: Housing. Uh, That's the really relatable infrastructure. Uh, In Singapore, home ownership rates are much, much higher than in New Zealand. Mm. uh, And they do do a good job of housing their people in affordable ways. But of course, just like New Zealand, they do have transport infrastructure. People rely on a combination of public transport and cars. They have obviously incredible ports. uh, And Getting projects delivered efficiently is what uh, Singapore is known for. So not just announcing the big project, but actually making it happen uh, in good time and doing that well. So there's always lessons that you can learn uh, from other countries, and I think that um, he'll come back with some of it.
0: I know that uh, is, is a quote here from him, which I thought was quite interesting. When he goes to Britain, he intends to, and these were his words, Nick and steal whatever he can from countries, <laughs> doing it better than New Zealand. So, so I mean, you must have had chats before he left. Things that he might be looking to Nick and steal on, on the trip, um, perhaps when, when he gets to Britain to look at education?
9: Well, I think uh, what the British experience has been is that they noticed that their reading rate and their uh, achievement in writing was slipping back to where they'd been in the past. And they took a focus on helping schools to improve the literacy education they were giving their kids. They did a number of things. Chris will be getting into the detail of that, but they were successful. The change was driven from central government, but ultimately, of course, it was teachers delivering it in classrooms and schools around the country. So he wants to understand what was that change? What did it look like? Why was it successful? Because New Zealand would like to do that too. We've also started slipping backwards, uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who'd like to see that turn around.
0: OK, uh, we'll get to that and we'll get something more solid. This is good. The Prime Minister uh, secured this $1.8 billion free trade deal with Europe. Are you happy about that?
9: I'm always happy when we get a free trade agreement, Nathan. Um, I think, uh, you know, of course there are things that we would have liked to have seen uh, in that free trade agreement that weren't there. Um, Our meat exporters and our dairy exporters are obviously very disappointed that they haven't had the gains that they wanted. Uh, Equally, uh, our horticultural exporters are are really happy with it. And at, at its heart, the idea that New Zealand would open up more markets some of the barriers in the way of its exporters, that is a good thing, and National supports that pursuit of uh, removing trade barriers.
0: I know that the meat and dairy people were in, on RNZ um, the day after, and they they felt well, you know, it wasn't good being signed this way. But I mean, do, is it worth refusing to sign uh, that deal? You know, unless they're involved, or do you, do you think it's it is worth it to sign it without them being involved, just to get the others over the line?
9: Well, it's always a difficult balancing act because what's in play is that, of course, uh, trade negotiators are always worried about the precedent they set for future deals. You know, if New Zealand is prepared to sign deals that don't give enough on dairy and meat in Europe, does that mean they'll be prepared to do that with the United States or with other countries that we're pursuing free trade agreements with? So there's a balance to strike between that concern and then, on the other hand, wanting to get those gains in other areas. And, The negotiators inside those negotiations have to pursue things really hard. They have to absolutely put New Zealand's interests first, and then they have to make a way up about when and how they sign. Of course, I wish that it were better uh, for some of our farmers. Um, I know that they would love to be able to send more of our meat there and to diversify their export markets. But the deal we've got is the deal we've got, and I know New Zealanders will want to make the best of it.
0: Mm. The Prime Minister currently in Australia meeting Anthony Albanese's administration. What do you think should be top of her agenda? Well
9: well for me what really matters at the moment is making sure that New Zealand businesses are able to, where it makes sense, to expand into Australia with as little friction and problem as possible and that equally we've got Australians who are prepared to come and invest in our businesses and help them grow in New Zealand so that we can have better paying jobs and more wealth in our country. So to that business-to-business business relationship is I think the, the work-on area for New Zealand. We do have such a close relationship with Australia. It's the best relationship that we have. And so we're fortunate that we're not looking at big issues that are sitting in the way big areas, but it's smaller things. Uh, and those people-to-people people relationships and exchanges really can help with that.
0: In a moment, we're going to be speaking with a school principal who's who's had to make the tough call to go back to home learning. Um, you know, because students and staff, and particularly I know it's very hard, I know schools uh, out west this way being hybrid learning as well, Uh, and it's not just COVID, it's flu going around as you. How worried are you um, about yet another major disruption to children's education?
9: Look, I am worried about it, but I really want to thank teachers and principals around the country who are keeping Uh, schools open and bending over backwards to do so because I think it makes a huge difference for children when they can learn in a classroom with other children face to face with their teacher uh, and that for many children they learn a lot more that way Uh, and so through the efforts of school leaders we're able to see that continuing across the country and I do want to see it continue for as long as it possibly can. Um, I know that in many schools they're being very careful uh, about hygiene and um, The risk of transmission, Uh, and look, I commend them on that. But certainly, I know that my four kids are pretty happy when uh, they walk in those classroom doors each morning. They certainly were when I dropped them off this morning.
0: Yeah, Uh, look, the hospitals overwhelmed, uh, schools uh, back with that home learning, and of course, people dying there every day. Are we doing enough to flatten this curve? And uh, I mean, what about a level change, something like that for us? Because these numbers are starting to get a little worrying now.
9: Look, my real worry is the ability of the health system to respond. And the critical issue there is the staffing shortages. We have 4,000 nurses short, and that is putting a huge amount of pressure on everyone in the health system. And you're seeing the backup in emergency rooms, people not getting the treatment that they would expect in a timely way. So the government needs to put its foot down and make sure that it puts nurses on the quick list for immigration. They need to stop this business of making them wait two years to get permanent residency and do everything they can to attract more nurses to New Zealand. Because frankly, they don't do that. The nurses we do have in the system, they're going to get burnt out and they're going to leave too. So this is a time where we need to support our nursing workforce with immigrants and the government should be pulling out all the stops to achieve that.
0: You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. Auckland's Carmel College is the latter school to tell its students to go back to online learning for the remainder of the term as COVID and flu run rampant through students and staff. So this comes as COVID-19 modelers are warning us that we could see the start of a second wave of Omicron due to the more transmissible BA5 variant. Joining me now is Carmel College Principal Chris Allen. Kia ora Chris. Kia ora, how are you Nathan? Oh, I'm very good but how are you because you must have been moving every and looking up everything and, and anywhere just to find a teacher that you can use for a reliever. Tell us how bad the relieving situation is for you.
8: Well, we have been up to about the last week or two, we have been very fortunate to be able to have a large pool of relievers and be able to use those um, very well. But we've actually got to the stage now in the last few days where we've needed relievers for the relievers for the relievers. So people are just dropping like flies and we just can't can't sustain this level of um, providing the care in the schools. Uh, So we've decided that it's time to actually do it online.
0: Yeah, now, I mean, I know we've been saying for the rest of the term, I think the term finishes Thursday or, or Friday, depending on, on how the school's set up, some of them on Wednesday too. But uh, what's your hope for taking this now, uh, you know, just ahead of the holidays?
8: So it's, it's four days. And so what we're hoping is that it's sort of like a circuit breaker. It gives the, the teachers and the students time to refresh, time to actually... Um, get better uh, because some of them are dragging themselves to school because they don't want to miss out. They do want to be at school. Uh, And we're trying to sort of say, if you are unwell, please stay at home because that's where you need to be and that's where you need to recover. But the stress of trying to achieve all of their assessments, get all this work done, Um, They are dragging themselves to school, Um, but we've got about 20% of our students away every day for about the last week and a half, Um, and we're up to about 25% of our staff away, so that's when it becomes unsustainable when that's been going on for over a week now.
0: Yeah, you know, we've had disruption here and you've had to learn how to cope, uh, as as have all the schools in the last few years. This year, I thought it would be easier, but it, it seems like everyone's a lot more tired. Is it worse this year than it was in previous years for you?
8: I think it is a little bit worse because we're having to manage it on our own. If, to some extent, we're actually having to make the calls as to how we actually run the schools and you know, sort of checking each day almost as to how, how everybody are go- is going. And what's happening is We've got the students being away, so we've got teachers having to catch them up when they come back or trying to help them online. Uh, and then we've also got the students having relievers all the time because the teachers, the teachers aren't there. And so we're trying to actually do that. So it's quite stressful when people are in and out and in and out all the time.
0: Yeah. How are you coping? How are your staff coping?
8: I think I'm looking around the, around the uh, the school. Um, Go for a wander around. It, they, they're very tired. Uh, and very um, sort of just getting through to the end, obviously doing everything they can for the students to make sure that they don't miss out. But it just comes at quite a toll to them and their families to actually be doing all of this extra work because you're teaching your class and then, of course, the students who aren't there are emailing and I didn't quite understand that, that you posted online. Can you please explain it a little bit more for me? And so you might have five, ten students doing that for you uh, after school. And so that's quite a lot of work for you to be added to your normal school day.
0: It is. Well, let's hope that it works out for you. Uh, Principal of Carmel College, Chris Allen, thank you very much for your time. And that's us for first up this morning. Uh, Joe, oh, Joe. Yeah, yeah, Joe says, yo, yo, the Wu-Tang Clan were Kung Fu, which means hard work. Karate means empty hands. Empty hand. Yeah, way of the hint. Yeah, I know. It was... Was it not? It's a joke from a comedian but that. Anyway, um, Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. Listen out for all your vampire finishing needs. Uh, from all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day. Remember, you can listen to our podcast anytime you like. Just download it, or we'll be back in your ears.